Travels with Charlie is paid for by Jolly Convenience Stores, Milne Travel American Express, and Casella Waste. The views and opinions expressed in Travels with Charlie do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Well, it's all about all the folks you meet. Sitting in a diner or out in the street. Catch up with the news. Get your point of view. I want to hear what unravels. I'll see you in my travels. I'll be hanging around. And welcome to another episode of Travels with Charlie. i got to give a quick shout-out to my good friend Billy Bratcher of the Starline Rhythm Boys, who gets a fair amount of uh, airplay here on WDEV. I hear him from time to time from uh, his uh, In the Lobby and uh, other sh- other uh, things that he's done along with the Starline Rhythm Boys. But that is Billy Bratcher on his own doing the theme song for Travels with Charlie, which was a video series that we started about two years ago. My executive producer and the producer of those videos uh, is with me in studio this afternoon. And, man, Brad, uh, Brad Furland, uh, good afternoon, Brad. Hey, Charlie. And, and how cool is this that actually I actually have a, a, a producer now, which doesn't happen uh, too often. Uh, worked for many, many years without a producer, but uh, good to have you with me today. And it is interesting that, uh, the videos that we shot uh, more than a couple of years ago, or close to a two years ago, uh, we're going to feature some of those guests on uh, today's program. Yeah, some of those themes haven't quite gone away, have they? Well, uh, and one of them just continues to get worse and worse, and that is uh, Vermont's pension crisis, which we are going to be discussing today. Now, at the time, this was uh, back in November of 2019 when we shot that video. By the way, that's episode number 12 and you can find that on Facebook, Travels with Charlie Vermont, on Facebook, or I believe those will be up on the WDEVradio.com website shortly. They have the podcast of the radio programs that we do, and we're going to get the, the podcast of the videos that we've shot in the past on the, the website as well. So that'll be very helpful. You can, you can watch those and you can, you can see what, some of uh, what we're talking about here. Now, we shot this back in 2019 on the pension crisis. And uh, I just want to say that uh, some things haven't changed. At the time, I asked Beth Pierce, the treasurer, uh, members of the legislature, and union heads to join us in that video. And, Brad, as you recall, we shot that video with economist Art Wolf and Dave Coates, and uh, we couldn't get any of the other people that I uh, suggested that we have on to join us. Now, uh, in- interestingly enough, this time it, it is no different. I've asked the Speaker of the House, Jill Krowinski, uh, Representative Bob Hooper, Representative Sarah Copeland Hansis, both of Government Ops, to be on, and uh, I got no response from them. You know, it's one thing if they say, I, I'm busy, I can't do it, or for some reason we shouldn't be discussing it because it's in litigation. I get all of that, but no response at all. Uh, you know, maybe they're doing a study committee. Uh, I know there's a lot of that going on. Right. In fact, when we when we shot this video with with Dave Coates and Art Wolf, we shot it at Soli Music in Essex Junction. Now, now this is the the beauty of the videos that we that we do from time to time. You'll notice that we we don't like just doing it in a studio. We go out and we try to have it have something to do with the topic. Well, what does a music studio have to do? 
with the pension crisis. I've known Dave Coates for a long time. Dave Coates was on my radio program multiple times. And I used to say to Dave, Dave, you keep talking about this pension crisis. You just keep banging that drum and no one's hearing it. So I suggested we go to a music studio with a set of drums and congas. They also, we had Art Wolf and, and, and Dave Coates on congas and, and myself on a drum kit. And I said, we've been beating that drum for a long time. Let's continue beating it. Well, maybe today we should be playing a game of uh, kick the can if we were to do uh, a video because it seems that that's what we're doing again. We just seem to be kicking that can. So, with, uh, without further ado, first let me uh, give a great thanks to our sponsors, Jolly Convenience Stores, Casella Waste Systems, and Milne American Travel. Wouldn't be doing this show without the help of our sponsors. So again, thanks to our sponsors. And here we are with today's guest. And joining me on phone line today, Dave Coates, former managing partner at KPMG, member of the Vermont Business Roundtable, and uh, I don't think he's any longer playing with the auditors, the group that he and Art Wolf uh, with their congas, no longer doing that. But uh, thank you for joining us today, Dave. Good to have you on, and we'll continue our conversation here. Well, it's great to be back, Charlie. Uh, even even though you aren't in the same studio, the music continues on, as you well know. However, there is a little bit of more light at the end of the tunnel, and I it could be a train. But I'm hoping that it'll be something more meaningful. Well, let's hope so. Also joining me today to uh, to look for some solutions to the uh, pension crisis here in Vermont, Matthew Cunningham Cook. Matthew is an investigative reporter and a capital market analyst for labor unions. Matthew, thank you for joining us here today on Travels with Charlie. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a frank exchange of ideas. Absolutely, and 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 hopefully. Well, you know, maybe the legislature can cancel their their study committee this summer if if we can come up with a solution. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yes. Uh, now, is that optimistic or, or pessimistic laughter? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I guess we can take that any any way you'd like, Dave. Let me let me go to you first. Now, when when we shot that video, it was in the fall of 2019. Vermont's pension. Unfunded liability, correct me if I'm wrong, $4.5 billion at the time. Where is it today? And if you're in your car, you might want to buckle your seatbelt and make sure that you're strapped in. It actually was 4.6. You were close. But that's okay for rounding. That's fine. Okay. It's really at 5.7 now. And that's up basically a billion dollars from the previous year. About $600 million of that on the pension side. And about four hundred odd million on the uh, retiree health care benefit side, and then when you look at it in total, what we're talking about is something that's nine times higher than our general fund bond obligation. It's the biggest liability we have at the state of Vermont, and it's the liability that has created a deficit on our balance sheet. And it continues to grow. I mean, that's really what. Uh concerns me and should concern most Vermonters, the fact that it continues to grow. Matthew, time has shown that we can't earn our way out of this. What are we doing wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the big, the biggest problem that we're facing uh, is uh, not the unfunded liability. It is because the state cannot run out of money or go bankrupt, 
been around for 234 years. It'll be around at least for another 234 more. States are not like the private sector. States have unlimited taxing power. Vermont has 15,000 millionaires. The big problem is that Treasurer Pierce's investment strategy has consistently trailed the market. So Warren Buffett, you know, the Oracle of Omaha, greatest investor of all time, has every year at his investment meeting, investor meeting, or maybe every other year, he, he usually has a mini rant. And it's, what the hell are pension funds doing? Why are they trying to beat the market? Why are they going into these opaque, high-risk, high-fee investment options like private equity and hedge funds and private real estate? Uh, why are they doing that instead of just putting their money in, you know, an acceptable mix of the S&P 500 index fund and, uh, you know, what's now called the Bloomberg Bond Index Fund? Yeah, Ma- Matthew, let, let, me, let me stop you there. And, and Dave, I'm going to have you jump in here in just a moment. But first, I, I want to say that, you know, you mentioned... Beth Pierce, this isn't all at the feet of Beth Pierce. This isn't something that just happened within the last five or six years. This has been going on. In fact, I have a, a note here from uh, former Governor uh, Jim Douglas, who was a guest on the program two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, he talks about 25 years ago when he was the treasurer and suggestions that he made. And you also bring up uh, the issue of, you know, Vermont, we're not going to go bankrupt. We have great taxing power and we have a, a number of millionaires here. Um, boy, if you want to drive millionaires out of the state, I think that's a you're on to a, a great concept here. Dave, what are your thoughts? Well, first uh, of wait, all, wait, can I no, just say? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, uh, sorry, if I could just uh, quickly answer that. So, because uh, I wasn't finished. So the, the issue is, is that Treasurer Pierce's high risk investment strategy has cost the state a billion and a half dollars over the last decade, and that's not including reinvestment. Uh, and so that is a much, much, much more pressing issue because we're not managing the money correctly as Warren Buffett recommends. So it's a billion and a half dollars that has cost the state. Uh, so yeah, just wanted to quickly say that. Okay. Dave, uh, your thoughts oh, okay. on, on? Yeah, let me make a couple of things. Uh, you, you, the 15,000 millionaires doesn't really compare to the data that is with the Vermont uh, Income Tax Department. Uh, as of 2019, we only had 622 returns that had adjusted gross income of over a million dollars, and those folks were paying seven and a half percent of the taxes. And even if we go to over 500 million, which is about 2,800 people, we only end up well, we end up with a large chunk, 14 percent. So I don't know where the other uh, 14,000 are, but if they're around, where they should be paying a tax, and that may be is the answer to all of this, but I don't think they're here. At least they aren't paying taxes. That's one thing. The other thing, I'm not here to defend Beth Pierce. Can I, one more, I'm not here to defend Beth Pierce. However, I do think it's important to note that Matthew's exactly right. The performance was has not been that good overall, except it has been very good over the last three years. We now rack, rank in the top percentile of all of the state pension plans in the country, whereas before we were in the bottom third, now we're in the top. So I think that's important to understand. We're on the right track. Plus, one other thing, and I serve on several pension boards uh, with corporations that I, that I work with, and uh, I don't know of any that would invest 70% in marketable securities because that's taking a huge risk over a 15 to 30 year period of time, the market's not always going to be flying high like it has been recently. 
And so you have to position yourself in a more prudent way. So most plans that I see, we're talking about at most 60-40, 60% marketable securities and 40% fixed income. So, I mean, with hindsight, yeah, if we had done that, we would have a lot more. But, it, but as a practical matter, we have to look forward in a more prudent way. Yeah, but, and that's not the way that people invest. I mean, hindsight uh, would be great. I'd certainly... Uh... Uh, I wish I'd, 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 I'd actually invested in Bitcoin or Doge, Dogecoin, you know, months ago, but I didn't. Well, don't get many ideas at the state. <laughs> Ma- Matthew, any other comments? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the state's pension fund is substantially higher risk than a 70-30 index fund, in my analysis, because private equity is higher risk than, than stocks. Uh, and the fixed income bond portfolio in the state has a much lower credit profile than the Bloomberg bond index fund. And looking backwards is actually important because there are clawbacks that can be done with poorly performing alternative investment managers, particularly with the exorbitant fees paid to those managers. So private equity, the fees paid to them are 30,000 to 60,000% higher at minimum than index funds for ordinary stocks and bonds. Um, and, you know, I just do want to kind of place it, again, in the broader context of, you know, the state has a good bond credit rating, uh, and then specifically to the millionaire's point, that, that's Vermonters with, with net assets of over $1 million. I was not saying that's the typical definition of millionaire, is your, your net assets, not your income. Um, and so, so that was what I was referring to. We do have 15,000 Vermonters who have net assets. All right, Matt, I'm going, to, I'm going to cut you right there. We're going to take a quick break. My guest today, Matthew Cunningham Cook, uh, he's a market analyst for labor unions, and Dave Coates, former managing partner at KPMG, member of the Vermont Business Roundtable. We're talking about Vermont's pension crisis. When we return, we'll open up the phone lines. If you have questions, you can join us right here on Travels with Charlie on WDEV. And welcome back to Travels with Charlie. You can join us on phone line here, uh, toll free at 1-877-291-8255 or locally at 244-1777. We're talking about Vermont's pension crisis with uh, Dave Coates along with Matthew Cunningham Cook. Uh, when we left, uh, I wanted to bring up a, um, uh, a note that uh, former Governor Jim Douglas uh, had sent me about when he was treasurer. This was back in 1996. He says the cost of the conversion, because he had uh, proposed at the time uh, going to a defined contribution plan, the cost of the conversion would to cash out of the existing plan was something like around $20 million, a serious number, but not insurmountable. The unions have always resisted the change, despite the fact that most of the private sector and lots of foreign governments have made the change. It would give each employee control over his own account, portability, choice of investments. For instance, if you don't want to be in tobacco or coal or gas, well, you wouldn't have to be. Why isn't that a good idea, Matthew? Why hasn't the unions caught on to what most private industry had to do 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, the first thing I would just say is any. there have been very, very few states and municipalities that have converted to a defined contribution plan, and that's because they've consistently found that DZ plans have higher costs than defined benefit plans. So it's 
not to kind of eliminate, you know, the, frankly, there are significant fiduciary management concerns with, you know, Beth Pierce and the VPIC's management of the state's pension funds, but it is always worth recalling that VB plans have lower costs overall than DC plans in administration, in fees, uh, whatever you have it. And the fact is, is that DB plans are the only type of pension plans that guarantee a secure retirement. Uh, so, and then we've also found that DB plans offer a multiplier effect uh, that create jobs for, for Vermonters. So these are very modest pensions, an average of $24,000 a year. It goes even lower if you uh, eliminate, you know, the political appointees and the chiefs of police and the superintendents from the system, you know, which I think the unions would be, frankly, pretty open to uh, a curtailment, a, a cap on, on pensionable benefits for, for non-union management employees. Well, um, well Dave, and so, Dave, l- l- what am I missing here, Dave? What uh, What is it that... That private industry, and you've been involved with uh, with enough in private industry to, to to comment on this. That that they realized years ago that it was not sustainable. Most of them got out of it. Not to say that there wasn't pain at the time, but it put them on the straight path to where they are today. They're profitable companies. They can't go to the uh, to the sector that that Matthew's suggesting. Well, we have taxing power. Well, you either raise prices or I guess you tax people. Uh, private industry hasn't been able to do that. Well, first of all, uh, private industry many years ago decided that they couldn't afford it. And as a result, they did freeze those plans or at least didn't allow people to come into them, new people coming in. And this is what essentially has been proposed at the state level and has been proposed in other, in other states and they haven't rejected those. In many cases, they've gone through with either a D.C. plan or a hybrid plan. Now, I took a look at what it would cost the state of Vermont if they were to convert to a D.C. plan, similar to 401K, for new employees. And basically, I, it would be a little over a million dollars a year, compounded, obviously. And it takes between five and six or seven years before you catch up. In other words, where it starts having a major impact on the D B plan, defined benefit plan. So I think it's it's possible to do. And when I proposed this back in 2010, if we had done that, probably close to 20% of the workforce now, including the teachers and the state workers, would be on that plan, and we wouldn't have the situation we're in now, because uh, we're in an unsustainable situation now. Dave, what's it do, what's it doing to our bond rating? Our bond rating, they, they uh, reaffirmed our bond rating, again, with questions relative to they assume we're going to be doing something on the pension and the health care side. So that's in there as well. But they did reaffirm them because I think we will be doing something. What, I don't know. But I do think that when you say average pension of 24, a modest average pension of $24,000, now averages, as you well know, are deceiving. And I know I, I haven't looked at those, but I know what gets, goes into those. But let's just take a teacher or a state worker that is going to reach normal retirement because what brings this down is that many people never reach normal retirement. They retire early, and they end up getting $1,000 or something similar to that, and that brings the average way down. But if we took under normal retirement uh, normal retirement procedures uh, a Somebody making $100,000, they end up with that as a retirement or ending salary, 
on a teacher side, they get sixty thousand dollars a year. Mm. Now that's that's more than modest, and on top of that, they get social security. And on the state worker, just saying making seventy five, that's close to forty thousand dollars a year. So you have to be careful when you look at averages. That's all I would say on that. Matthew, there's a lot of pressure from the unions. Let correct me if I'm wrong. The most most unions here in Vermont, they don't have the same plan that they're advocating because they can't afford it themselves. Am, am I right? Uh, for the staff, yeah. I, you know, I I I couldn't. I, I can't. I can't speak to that. You know. I mean, again, you know, when you're dealing with very large public employers, research from the National Institute for Retirement Security, among others, have found that consistently a defined benefit plan is the lowest cost way to to engage in retirement provision. Um, so, I mean, again, in the in the private sector, I would say there were other competing pressures. I mean, there were. David's certainly aware of kind of significant changes to accounting rules, particularly in the private sector, that made pensions much more expensive. Those types of rules are starting to emerge yeah. here Got, as well. So guys, example, guys. The, the, we we just have a couple of minutes. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes more, and I'd like to. I don't know if we can. Okay. I know it's not maybe not fair to say. Okay, what's your solution? Uh, uh, my question would be: How high would the liability have to be before we recognize we can't continue on this path? It's now at five point seven billion. Uh, you know, when does it hit a number when we go? Oh my God, we can't. We just we need to do something. Go ahead first. Charlie, Matthew. it hit that number, and that's why I have to. I, I believe that something will happen as a result of it. You know, there's a couple of competing proposals. The treasurer had one, which was a lot of options in it. The the uh, House came out, government off through the speaker, came out with another uh, to get things started at the conversation. And those got shelved because they didn't have enough time, I guess, to really uh, get those out to the public and basically the union so they could chew on them a little bit. I do think with the task force, with the charge that they have to come up with something equivalent to about a hundred million dollars of savings on the annual payment, and they got to reduce at least six hundred million dollars on the liability, and they have to reduce the retiree health care benefits by about a billion dollars. That that will put the state back where it should be. Matthew, I'll give you the final word. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know we, there are other crises as well like child poverty and like the opioid crisis that the state hasn't chosen to address and the fact is, is that we can organize our I think we should do one okay. issue at a time Matthew that's uh, yeah <laughs> with, with all due yeah, respect I mean, well it's it's just about kind of saying that there are different crises at different times and frankly the way that David has framed this issue you know, in my view, doesn't jive with my, you know, decade of experience as a financial analyst. And it just shows you that there's kind of two sets of analyses that, in my view, but only one of them gets heard, right? You know, thanks for having me on, but David's position is the one that's kind of all over the media. You well, know, and you can't, you can't deny, David, how, you can't deny, Matthew, how that unfunded uh, liability has grown over the years. 
Uh, I want to thank you both for joining me again. Dave Coates, along with Matthew Cunningham Cook, as we discuss the Vermont pension crisis. You can also uh, check it out at uh, uh, on Facebook, uh, Travels with Charlie. You can see the episode that we shot with the Art Wolf and uh, Dave Coates. Thank you both for being with me today. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to meet a couple of other folks that did a video with me a while ago. We're going to be talking about rehab and recovery options in Vermont. Keep it right here on WDEV. Yeah, I can see Pastor Rick over here. He's uh, yeah. he's playing the drums on that one. Welcome back to Travels with Charlie. Thanks for joining me today. Open phone lines, too, by the way, uh, uh, listeners. Love to hear from you. Your thoughts, your comments, 1-877-291-8255. That's toll free. Or if you're in the area, 244-1777. As I mentioned at the open of the show today, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the guests that are on the program today have also done videos with me in the past on Travels with Charlie, and I want to welcome them back to uh, the program. Uh, both they were in Greg Tatro. Greg is uh, with me this afternoon. Greg, thanks for being with me. Episode 31, if you want to check it out on Facebook or YouTube. And Greg is the founder of Jenna's Promise and Jenna's House in Johnson. We're going to be talking about rehab and recovery options in Vermont, and Pastor Rick Welch, who I've, when I found out when we did the video, he's also a drummer. You wouldn't let me on that drum kit, though. Oh, no. uh, Pastor Rick Welch, uh, again, was on episode 33, and he is the executive director of Teen Challenge Vermont. Thank you both for being in studio with me today, guys. Good Great. to see you. Thanks for having us. So, uh, both interesting stories to tell uh, about how you came to do what you do today. To help people with addictions, Greg, I'd like to go to you first. You have a, a very interesting story. Uh, your daughter was was addicted to, to opioids, and and due to that, uh, you founded Jenna's House. Tell me about that. Yes, well, we lost Jenna uh, February fifteenth a couple of years ago, and um, we just decided that we need to help. So we could have locked ourselves in the bedroom and and uh, let the world go by. But we thought, hey, we're in a position where we can do a lot of good for folks, and uh, we're, we're getting there. And, uh, you know, I went to the to the Jenna's house that you, you'd started. Uh, interesting, you have a background in construction. Of course, you own a construction company. So not that it makes it any easier for doing what you're doing, but there was a church for sale. You bought the church. And you started converting it. Where are you at with that church right now, Greg? That's coming good. We're going to have our grand opening um, in the end of July, uh, the last Saturday of July. So that's going to be fun. Uh, the upstairs is pretty well done. We've got a big screen and a uh, place to have meetings. So is, is that also turned into dorms or not? No, no housing. No housing there. Right. It's more of a meeting area. Right. And then uh, the North Central Recovery Center is going to be running a new moms program in the basement. We're also going to have a health and wellness program there. So that should be open in the next, well, 30 or 40 days. Pastor Rick, again, a very interesting story with you. Um, Fifteen or sixteen times you had been into different rehab and recovery programs until you finally came to Teen Challenge. And it worked for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, my story is I was 23 years addicted to heroin. And uh, I tried 16 different programs. Uh, 
I ended up detoxing about 56 times and nothing, I, I couldn't break free from the addiction to heroin. And I stumbled upon this place in New Haven, Connecticut back in 1997 called Teen Challenge, which I didn't understand. I wasn't a teenager. I was in my late 30s. And uh, they said, that's okay. It was the, the name's a misnomer. We help people with addiction. We help them through a relationship. We're faith-based. We're a faith-based recovery system. And I walked in there. It wasn't my first choice. It was my last resort, and it's the the thing that helped me to break free from heroin, and that was 23 years ago. And I knew after that that I didn't want to do anything else with my life but help other people to get set free from you know, addiction. Well, I think if we do anything today, if there's one person listening that uh, we can turn their life around or we can save a life, that's certainly uh, that's what we want to do here, obviously, and what you want to do with, with your centers. And, and so you've graduated the program, and, and then you moved on. You're the executive director. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it, it's, it's a God thing. Um, it wasn't me. It was God. I just knew that I... I wanted to help people. I, I ended up going to school, became a pastor, came up to Vermont, founded Teen Challenge Vermont in 2005. We opened the doors. Uh, now I'm the executive director over that, over a women's program in Vermont, and also over the uh, work in Connecticut. I oversee that. And, and one of the things that I think is probably different from other rehabs is that yours is not a 30-day program. In fact, when I first found out about it, when we met in Johnson, uh, you said anywhere from 12 to 15 months. People have to make that commitment. Yes. The first thing they do is they they turn in their cell phone <laughs> and they commit to being there for 12 to 15 months. Yeah, It's not easy. It's not a small commitment. It's a large commitment, but it works. We find that, you know, if you get good momentum behind your sobriety, behind your clean time, you know, a year sobriety is is as a great accomplishment. So you take that momentum with you and you, you build on that. So with 12 to 15 months and even beyond, we offer programs even lengths of time beyond the 15 months to an apprenticeship and even then to get considered to be hired on as staff. Greg, let's talk about jobs and training because this is something that you found out was very important. And if you could tell the story about your daughter when she had come through a rehab program and went to get a job, and what happened as she was leaving that appointment with that interview? Right. My wife, Dawn, took Jenna to a interview, and she was uh, she was a beautiful girl anyway. You know, you just, just she had charisma, and she was just a wonderful person. So she did, she nailed the interview. She came out and told her mom, she said, you know, I did the interview and was happy. But on the way out the door... I heard somebody say, well, we're not going to hire her because she's a drug addict. So that stigma is, uh, it, I think that didn't help her moving forward when people say things like yeah. that. And I think that's a point that both you and Pastor Rick agree on is that you can't just, it can't just be a rehab program. You need to get them back into society working productive because if they don't, well, you know what happens, Greg. They, they go back and they, they start, they hang out with their old friends and it's back to their, to the old things. So with that said, at Jenna's house, Jenna's promise, you have also started to build and to work on a cafe, a coffee shop, which will give jobs to, to the folks that come to your recovery center. 
Yes, actually, we've had a, we have started a business already called JP's Promising Goods, and that is a, a new surplus store. So we're already uh, putting people to work that are in recovery. But the cafe will pr- probably be, hopefully by the first of the year, will be up and running. Um, we've got a grant, a CBDG grant. The historical folks got involved and uh, bless their hearts, but they slowed it down just a tad. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I did see the building. It's a very old building. Very historic. I mean, when you look at it, you go, "Wow!" You know, really, it probably if, if the walls could speak, the stories that you would hear in there. Uh, and being in the construction business, you look at it and you go, eh, "Piece of cake." We go in there, you know, and put some sheetrock over here, plywood, this and that. Uh, and yet, then you get into the the issues of permitting and everything. And that's is that what's really slowed you down here? Yeah, I think so. And we're kind of new to the grant grant world also, so that slowed us down a tad. And uh, but we're getting it. We're uh, we know this is a long haul. Yeah, we're not going to change this in in a, in a year or two years. It's going to take time. What's so. uh, where's the coffee shop located, and people can look forward to to going there within the the beginning of next year. Right, it's right on Main Street in Johnson. And uh, you'll see the building because it's going to be the nicest building on the street when we're done. <laughs> so you can't miss now, it. Now, there, w- there will be dorms there on the property as well, correct? Yeah. We already have a recovery home uh, in in Johnson where we have uh, three uh, clients there now. Uh, there, Two of them are working out, and the other one just arrived not long ago so she's working a little bit at the promising goods yeah. uh, place and uh, she's coming they're all coming really well and we have another client coming fairly soon and we take people out of rehab or incarceration if it's if it's opioid related we don't really care where they come from we just want to help them. yeah and this will create jobs for them they'll be able to work as uh, baristas and 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 you're not doing instant coffee you told me that you're actually going to start uh, roasting your own coffee, correct? That's correct. We have a, a another facility we're going to start roasting. And a little story to that, uh, we working with uh, Fish and uh, Trey Anstasio and uh, helping him with his Ludlow project. And uh, he says, well, if you ever need anything, let us know. Oh, so, boy, he, ha- he well, shouldn't have said so, that. <laughs> so we sent in a request on a Monday to buy a coffee roaster and an afterburner and some equipment. <laughs> And then on um, Wednesday, that same week, they emailed us and said, hey, where do you want the money wire to? Wow, that, so, that's a fantastic story. And, and are you learning any of these uh, these skills, coffee, you know, along with construction, coffee roaster? And uh, I, I remember I asked you before, because you, you told me you can't make muffins. So Yeah, uh, <laughs> muffins would be out of my territory. <laughs> Not happening. <laughs> my grandson's pretty good at it, but. Rick, I'd like you to jump in for a minute here uh, and, and talk about some of the differences that you see in your program from from Greg's program. Uh, I know that you mentioned, you know, faith plays a big part in it, but also music. You know, I joked about you playing the drums over there as we were starting off the the segment here this afternoon. Uh, when I when I met you you're in this huge room, and I noticed it's all set up with a drum kit and speakers, and you tell me, oh yeah, you know, the, you know, people come here and 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 we we have a band, we 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 have a chorus, uh, and that's yeah. an important part. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the more people are involved, you gotta, you gotta displace the drugs and the alcohol with something that people are passionate about, something that people care about. Music is one of those things that, you know, everybody enjoys music, listening to it, and there's a certain amount of people that, that just love to get involved in it. So, we do praise and worship, we have a chapel, we, uh, we teach people how to play guitar. My wife's a guitar player, keyboardist. She teaches, she helps people learn those skills. I help them a little bit on the drums. Yeah, as I found out, you're yeah, very, yeah. Protect, yeah, protective very protective of the drum yeah. kit. He wouldn't let me near no, no, it, no, Greg. No. You know, I'm an aspiring, I want to learn how to play the drums. So, he so, wouldn't so, let me near it. So we have, we have another drum kit we set up for the, for, for the ones that want to learn. But oh. to get people involved, is the key to me. Yeah. Like the work aspect, like uh, Greg was talking about. You know, it's important. We we go to work for folks. We go to work for local companies, and a lot of our guys end up being employed by them. We've we've done some work for Greg, and he's helped us out a lot. And it's it's a good thing to give people a purpose because when they have a purpose, they have a reason for being. It, instead of going to drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, whatever addiction it is. To have something positive, healthy, that's community-minded, that will help people. I mean, it's always a good way to channel them, to get their minds off of uh, drugs, alcohol, what they don't have, and to the hope that they do have today. Pastor Rick Welch is my guest, along with Greg Tatro. They both uh, have uh, recovery centers here in Vermont, uh, with Greg's just starting up. And Pastor Rick's has been in existence for a number of years. Teen Challenge has been around... 63 years. For 63 the years. 1,400 centers of Teen Challenge worldwide. Yeah. And the name Teen Challenge, sometimes people listen and they go, well, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, we're changing that, though. That's going to be Adult and Teen Challenge. So that's going to take a while to get that going. So And I, I have to start learning that myself. You know, So it's Vermont Adult and Teen Challenge. So we, we help from Wright and Johnson. We help from 18 all the way up. Our, our oldest graduate was 78 years old. Rick, you told a story on the video that we did, and again, people, you can go to the the go to Facebook or YouTube and see that uh, video that we shot. That was episode number thirty-three in the travels with Charlie, and you talked about your lowest point in your life because I think sometimes people just don't get that. They think about well, you know they're addicted to drugs, but you hit a point. You really hit rock bottom, and you talked about how your son was involved in, in bringing you around. And you lived on the streets yeah. for many years. Yeah, I was uh, I was homeless. Um, that's where my addiction took me. Um, someplace I said I would never be and what I would never sleep at a shelter. Never All the nevers I did. And I had a son, you know, back in high school, and, and he was going to University of Rhode Island, and he saw a Teen Challenge choir. He saw a Teen Challenge Choir, and he heard the testimonies, because that's what we do. We share our testimonies. And he said, man, that could be my dad. So he came and found me on the street. I was in, in Connecticut. That's where I, I come from. He told me about Teen Challenge. The next day, we called Teen Challenge. Two weeks after that, I had a bed at Teen Challenge. And that was 23 years ago. I've never looked back. Never Did put it? another drug or drink in my body. Was it 12 months or 15 for you, Rick? It was 12. 12 months. Because I signed up to stay on. And, you know, I went in for 30 days. Uh, 23 years later, I'm still here. That's a long 30 days. But I found something. I found Jesus first, and I found a way better way of life. And um, I'm living a dream. Greg, uh, how would you say that your program differs from many of the state 
sponsored programs? Well, we we believe that when people come out of incarceration and uh, inpatient, they, they need to go to a safe place to live and then get them stabilized and then put people to work. And I think that's where the money that feds and the state are rolling into addiction services, that's where we're missing the boat. We, they're doing all they can, but we've got to change it up because we're just banging our head against a wall doing the same thing again and again yeah. and expecting different results. And it's, it's not going to change until we change it. And without the jobs, it's not going to change at all because y- you've got somebody that's been rehabbed and then you just you turn them out on the street and where do they go? Right. It's like if you had an eating disorder and you live by a steakhouse, you know, you smell out every day. Eventually, you're going to end up in there. It's so, not a good idea. Or muffins. Well, those muffins, yes. <laughs> we keep talking they're, about. They're pretty tough to walk Well, I, I, can't, I can't wait to come out to, to Johnson and, and get a nice cup of, of uh, hot roasted uh, coffee. Compliments of uh, Trey Anastasio from Fish for helping Absolutely. out on that. Absolutely. Thanks to him for doing that. Uh, I want to let uh, people know where they can go for more information of Jenna's House, Jenna's Promise, and Teen Challenge. Greg? Yeah, this is jennaspromise.org. And uh, don't give up, guys. If you're out there addicted, you can change. You can make it. You can make it. You can. And Rick? Yeah, and Teen Challenge Vermont would be tcvermontspeltout.org. And I like what Greg said. There's hope, and there's a way, and there's a way out that you can get out and you can stay out. Thank you both for being my guest today on Travels with Charlie. Coming up, Allison Thomas from Fish and Wildlife Department, Green Mountain Conservation Camp. That's coming up. Summertime is on the way. Keep it right here on Travels with Charlie, WDEV. Welcome back to Travels with Charlie. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Your host, Charlie Papillo. I'm here every other Monday, unless there's a Red Sox game. And it looks like for the rest of the season, we're going to be A-OK with that. Uh, every other Monday from 1 to 2, right here on WDEV. And a quick reminder, you can always check the website, wdevradio.com. We have podcasts of our previous shows on there. You can see the one that we did with Rusty DeWeese and former Governor Jim Douglas getting rave reviews. Everyone saying those guys should do a show together. They did do a show together at one time. And who knows, maybe uh, sometime this summer, Jim will join uh, Rusty on his flatbed truck that he is uh, putting together for shows that he's got coming up uh, very, very shortly. Well, certainly with summer on the way, Many people start thinking about camps for their kids, and the pandemic has certainly been an issue with have have you been able to do that or, or not do it? A lot of questions about that. Well, joining me is the education manager of the outreach division of the Fish and Wildlife Department, Allison Thomas, to talk about Green Mountain Conservation Camp. Allie, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So it is that time of year. Not a lot of parents are starting to think about summer camp programs. As I mentioned, last year just didn't happen, and that didn't, hap- didn't change at all with Green Mountain Conservation Camp. It got put on hold. But this year, it looks like it's going to be happening and bigger and better than ever. Am I correct? You are correct. And, you know, a lot of parents and, and guardians start thinking about summer camp in January, and that's typically when applications are available, uh, you know, statewide or countrywide, really, to apply to camps. 
So this time of year, you're almost kind of at the very tail end and, and lucky if there are spots still available in a normal year, which this year is shaping out to be normal. <laughs> and uh, are there any spots left? Few and far between at the Green Mountain Conservation Camp program at this point, which is a you know a bummer for people still looking, but it's worth trying because there might be a short wait list or a spot that opens up. Um, but it's also a really happy thing because it means that we have almost 900 kids that are going to spend a week in you know the beautiful woods and waters of Vermont this summer, kind of reconnecting, recouping, and, and healing after a disruptive year. And I know that there are some scholarships available, uh, or there there typically are each year. And thanks to our friends at Jolly Convenience Stores, I know that they help out with their their buck pool that they do they do every year as a fundraiser. And some of that money goes to to help uh, scholarships for the Green Mountain Conservation Camp. Absolutely, every year we have about forty percent of our campers. Let's say there's about nine hundred and fifty campers in a summer. Uh, we have about forty percent scholarships or sponsorships available for those 950 kids to attend camp free of charge. Now, camp tuition is $250 for a residential week at camp, but which isn't a big price tag. But even so, it, it, it can be a barrier, and we don't want anything to stop any interested kids from right. coming to our camp. So now it's we a, have it's, lots, and, it's and a Jolly one- does donate. Yeah, thanks again to Jolly Convenience for doing that. It's a one-week program, and it's uh, it's an overnight program, Correct. Yes, it is. So we have separate weeks for boys and girls, so ages 12 to 14 for a basic week, and then up to age 16 for advanced weeks. And they arrive on Sunday, and they leave on Friday. What, what can you tell me about some of the activities? And I know I joked with you, and you didn't you didn't get it. It's, a, it's certainly an age thing. Anybody that's listening, if you're in your 50s or 60s, you'll, you'll understand what GIMP is. When you went to camp, you used to make these lanyards and bracelets. Allie had no idea what I was talking about, <laughs> which, you know, most people don't anyway, Allie. So, <laughs> but um, your program is very conservation-based. I mean, some of the things that you do, can you tell us about some of the activities that the campers will do? Yes, I think all summer camps have a lot to offer kids, but I would say GMCC is incredibly unique in that we focus on conservation education. So we have hands-on learning experiences about fish, wildlife, ecology, botany, forestry. We even have hunter education where uh, the, the campers will leave with a certification if they pass outdoor first aid, hiking, camping, canoe building, or not canoe building, I'm sorry, canoeing and shelter building. They shoot 22 rifles and shotguns. We orienteer. We go fishing. And what's really unique is along with the nine natural resource instructors who live on site with the kids and are very qualified and very well trained, we have foresters teach forestry and wildlife and fisheries biology biologists from our department, Fish and Wildlife, teach those subjects as well as uh, Vermont State Game Wardens who run the ranges when we're doing 22 or or shot, uh, 22 rifles or shotguns. So nice. These, uh, it's a really neat opportunity for camp, campers to learn directly from the people who do this work for the state of Vermont. What are the age limitations, Allie? So for a basic week, which what is what every kid has to go to the first time, it's age 12 to 14. And then once a child has attended camp one summer for a basic, they're allowed to come back the next summer to advanced weeks as many as they want until they're they're 17. And then at 17 years of age, they're they're too old by age 17. But 
you know, so 12 to 16 is the age range of campers, and that, that's between basic and advanced weeks. Well, great information. If, if people want to find out more information about the Green Mountain Conservation Camp, find out if there's any openings, Allie, what's the best way to do that? If they just go to vtfishandwildlife.com, the Green Mountain Conservation Camp has a tab right on that very first page, and that will tell you. Again, it is pretty booked for the year, but that doesn't. I, I still think it's great to check out. All right. And we have other opportunities for older kids, too, this summer on the weekend. So even if the typical camp doesn't work, we have opportunities for kids All from right. Natural Resource Management Sounds Academy good. and others. Allie, thank you for joining me today. Allie Thomas with the Fish and Wildlife Department. I want to thank all of my guests today. I want to remind you, coming up on the next show, that's Monday, May 24th, Senator Thomas Chittenden and Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray will have the Casella Sustainability Spotlight, and we'll talk with the owner of Vermont's largest DJ entertainment company about how the pandemic is affecting the wedding industry. Can somebody scream?